Parshat Emor. We are um, we're going to begin, but before we do, I just want to say that this shear has been sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs in memory of Lillian's father, Irving Glatter. Yitzchak ben Dovber, Zichrono Livracha. His Yarkzeit is on the 29th of Nissan, so it was last week. Um, and we'd like to wish um, the Neshama should have an Aliyah and we should be Zechat Sitchias HaMesim. We're going to talk about the chapter in Parashat Emor that discusses, actually lists all the festivals of the Jewish calendar. So it's fascinating because there's a, there is actually a series of different lists throughout the Torah. Um, the one which is best known um, is this one because it includes a lot of extraneous information. For example, Sfirat Omer, we're in the middle of the counting of the Omer, that today is the 25th day of the Omer. Sfirat Omer is listed among the festivals as well. Um, but most curiously, and that's really what I'm going to focus on today, um, the, the chapter begins, it's a double introduction. I'm going to read it to you in the Hebrew and the English. It's the first source. God instructs Moses to give the following information to the Jewish nation. Speak to the Israelites, say to them, Hashem. So the word Mo'ed means time. We also use the word to mean festival. But actually the, um, the precise translation of the word Mo'ed is fixed time. So it's, he says to Moses, tell the nation, Mo'adei Hashem, asher tikru'u otam mikra'ei kodesh, eileheim mo'ado. So that's a fantastic, mo'adai. This is a fantastic um, introductory uh, verse. I'll translate it for you. These are my fixed times, the fixed times of God, um, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. Okay, so there's two things here. There are fixed times and there, um, there is something that they have to declare as sacred. There seems to be a combination here. So the, the times themselves exist, they pre-exist any declaration, but there is also the requirement to declare those times. I, I'll explain to you what that means um, in calendar terms. We know when Pesach is, right? Pesach is on the 15th of Nisan. We know that because it's that, that actual that date appears a little bit later on in the, uh, in the um, chapter. But um, what we don't know is when the month of Nisan starts. So in order for us to declare a sacred time, which pre-exists any declaration, we must decide when the month begins. Uh, and this is very unique uh, as we're going to see a little bit later on, very unique to the Jewish calendar system, is that the determination of Rosh Chodesh, of the beginning of a month, is up to us. It's not something that um, is predetermined. Now, it's a little confusing, because today we get printed calendars here in Los Angeles, printed by the Hebra Kadisha, which I find rather morbid, actually. Why is it that the, the calendar that we get here in Los Angeles, it's a, the ubiquitous calendar you see everywhere, is printed by the Hebra Kadisha? I don't want to be reminded about Hebra Kadisha when I'm looking up what, what date Hanukkah is. Anyway, so the calendar is, is, is pre-calculated. Why is that? Because a thousand years ago, more, um, it became clear that as the Jewish diaspora was spreading, it would be very difficult to determine Rosh Chodesh in one place and convey that information to many, many other places. So when the Jewish world was confined more or less 
to the Middle East or the Near East, which was um, Judea, Galilee, and Babylon, or the Mesopotamia as it was known in those days, um, then it was quite easy to convey the information within 24 hours, usually less, that information through a series of beacons would be conveyed from Judea all the way through to, to uh, the heart of the Jewish world, which was in Mesopotamia. However, as the Jewish world spread out further and further, that information was very difficult to convey, and they decided to predetermine the calendar. They, they were great astrologers, they understood the movement of the stars, and they created this two ways of doing it so that it always aligns correctly. There's a 28-year cycle, which we don't use except for Birkat HaChama, the blessing that we see over the sun every 28 years. And there's a 19-year cycle. We are now in the fourth year, I believe, of the 19-year cycle, third or fourth year of a 19-year cycle, which means, by the way, that every 19 years, the, your birthday is on exactly the same English date. Right, that's why it works, because it's a 19-year cycle. There's another anomaly in that, is that sometimes, as it was the case this month, Rosh Chodesh is not actually on the first day after the appearance of the new moon, because it doesn't always work precisely, because it's predetermined. But the real way of creating the Jewish calendar is by witnesses coming from a very dark place somewhere where they'd been observing the stars and the moon. They see the first sliver of the new moon. They rush to Jerusalem or wherever the center of Jewish life was. Yavne was another place. And they would say, we've seen the moon, we've seen the moon. They would ask them a series of questions and they would declare Rosh Chodesh. What that means is that it's not always the case that Pesach, just to use the example I started with, is on the same exact day um, as you would imagine the 14th of Nisan should be. So even though it's always on the 14th of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan could turn out to be a Monday, it could be turn out to be a Tuesday, right? It, it just depends on when the witnesses came. That's what this Pasuk is telling us, uh, which is that you have the right to determine when the 14th of Nisan is. Even though there's a fixed date in the calendar, that fixed date is not always on the same day. And there's an additional aspect to this, which is, of course, it's what Rashi brings. And I've, I put that Rashi in the English translation in the second source. Rashi tells us that there's another aspect to the Jewish calendar, which is a curious anomaly. Um, the Christians and the world at large uses a solar calendar, which is a 365-day year, 364-day. Is it 364? 365 days, except for when there is a leap year, when we add an extra day every four years, because actually it's 365 and a quarter days, isn't it? Um, which is the solar year. It's arbitrarily split up into 12, um, 30 or 31 day months. One of them is 28 February, which is where we add the 29th day on a leap year. But actually it doesn't lend itself to a 12 month split. But that's the calendar that they use, and it's essentially based on a seasonal system, which is, you know, exactly when the summer's going to be, when the spring's going to be, autumn, etc. So um, that solar calendar is what we use in a secular sense, and the Christians use it. The Muslims use a lunar calendar, which is a calendar to determined by the month. Now there, the month makes sense, because the month is either 29 or 30 days long always, because that's the, how long it takes for the moon 
um, to go from wax to wane. So it starts off with nothing, grows to a full size, and then um, shrinks again until it's, until it's nothing. That is a 29 to 30 day cycle. Okay, now the problem with, of course, the lunar calendar is that there's no year, there's only a month. So you can't say the lunar calendar is a 12 month year. It's, it's not based on anything because it's, it's only based on a, on a 29 or 30 day cycle. So arbitrarily, um, uh, you know, we have created a system which combines the two solar and lunar by adding an extra month. And actually in the 19 year cycle, we add seven extra months during the course of that 19 year cycle. So we don't have 19 times 12, we have 19 times 12 plus seven. So that every 19 years we have an exact cycle. But that was something which actually in, in the time before the predetermined calendar, which we get on our Hevra Kadisha card, that the rabbis would determine every couple of years, it's usually once every three or four years, they would decide, right, it's not possible for, um, you know, because we know that Pesach has to be in the spring and that Sukkot is the harvest festival, it would be pretty silly if Sukkot was in the middle of the summer. So every three or four years, they would determine whether or not before Pesach they should add an extra month. That month is in our calendar called the second month of Adar, Adar Sheni. Okay, now the reason for that is to keep the calendar, our lunar calendar, aligned with a solar calendar. By the way, the Muslims who use the lunar calendar do not do this. So they have a 12-month cycle, which means that they, they lose a month every year. Okay, so they lose actually 11 days every year, because the difference between 12 months of 29 or 30 days and 365 days is 11 days. So every three years, they lose a full month, right? We've just said that we would add a month. They don't, which means that Ramadan can be in the winter or it can be in the summer. Makes no difference. It's, they just keep to that 12-month cycle, which is completely arbitrary. It makes no sense at all for, the month, for, the, for it to be a 12-month year. The lunar calendar could be a 10-month year or 5-month year or 22-month year because it, it, just, it just depends on what you decide that it's going to be. All of this is contained in this one verse. Can you imagine that? This, everything I've just told you is contained in this one verse in the Torah. I'm going to read it to you again and now you'll see how clever it is. Daber al Bnei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish nation, and say to them, Mo'adei Hashem, the fixed times of God, asher tikru'u otam, that you shall proclaim Mikra'i Kodesh as sacred occasions, Mo'adai. These are my fixed or fixed times. In other words, it's up to you to determine when my fixed times should be. You are the ones who are going to create the calendar. All I have told you is what the dates are. When those dates actually occur are up to you. You determine the months. You are the one to determine when the extra month of the year is going to be. So if you decide that Yom Kippur is going to be on a particular day, that is the day that you're going to fast. But it could have been yesterday. It could be tomorrow. No, no. You decided it was going to be on that day. Therefore, that's the day it's going to be. Okay? Now, I'm going to continue. The pasuk, the next pasuk, pasuk Gimel says, Sheishet yamim ti'asem 
וביום השביעי, שבת שבתון מקרא קודש, כל מלאכה לא תעשו, שבת היא להשם בכל מושבותיכם. On six days, work may be done, that on the seventh there shall be a Shabbat of complete rest, a sacred occasion, right, mikra kodesh, um, you shall do no work. It shall be a Shabbat of God throughout your settlements. What is curious about this? The fact that we know Shabbat is not a festival. Tell me why Shabbat isn't a festival. There is one day that we celebrate or that we commemorate or that we consider to be sacred that can never be changed. I can't decide that Tuesday is Shabbat. We've just said the whole, um, the characteristic of festivals that is unique is that we determine when the festivals are. Begin, so the chapter should begin with Pesach. Right? Because that is the first month of the calendar year. I, I know we're going to get to Rosh Hashanah in a, middle, in, a, in a minute, because we consider Rosh Hashanah to be the beginning of the year. But for, for in terms of the year, uh, you know, I'm going to explain this in, in a method that we understand. What's the first month of our calendar year? January, isn't it? Of, of the secular year. It's January. Right? So we, when do we... A secular people, when do we celebrate the new year? End of the 31st of December, we go into the 1st of January. When is the end of the year in terms of, of taxes? The tax year? Well, it is December 31st, but it's April. April. But that's, a, by the way, a very ancient thing. The, the, when you determined your taxation and the amount you owed to tax being in the, at the end of the spring before the summer is something that dates back thousands of years. After, after, after the harvest has been sold, the end of the, and the beginning of the new agricultural year is the spring. That was, that's the beginning of the year. So that is also reflected in the way, and I don't know why January, by the way, that's very curious, why January should be the beginning of the secular year, I've never been able to establish, because it makes much more sense in the Jewish in the Jewish calendar, the Jewish calendar is that you've got two um, year beginnings. The one which is at the end of the spring, which is the tax year. And then you've got the beginning of the year, which is the, not the, quite the beginning of the agricultural year, but it's at the end of the summer and the beginning of fall, right? That makes much more sense because the agricultural year actually begins then. It doesn't begin at the end, uh, at the end of the spring or beginning of the summer. It begins... At the, at the end of the summer and the beginning of the winter or the winter period. That makes more sense. Okay, we can, it's, a, it's arguable, but the middle of the winter to make a new year makes no sense whatsoever. But what we can say for sure is that Shabbat makes no difference where you are in the world, and I've written an article about this. The seven-day week is the week which has incredible endurance wherever you go in every culture of the world. That means the Sunday through Saturday week, which has been changed somewhat by the Christians into a Monday through Sunday week, but it's still a seven-day week. The Muslims commemorate their religious day on Friday. But the concept of Shabbat being on Shabbat is something which, you know, you won't find any differentiation wherever you go in the world. In which case... 
the inclusion of Shabbat in a list of Jewish festivals makes no sense. That's very curious because Shabbat is not something which is determined by us. It's been determined as it were from above. It is Shabbat today. I want to keep Shabbat on Tuesday. Well, then you're crazy because Shabbat isn't on Tuesday. Shabbat is on Shabbat. If you want to keep Shabbat on Tuesday, you're keeping it on the wrong day. Now, when it comes to Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is never on the same day. One day it may be on Shabbat, another, uh, one year it may be on Shabbat, another year it may be on Monday, another year it may be on Tuesday. Right? It's still going to be Yom Kippur on that day. Why? Because we've determined that that's the date of Yom Kippur. Right? But when it comes to Shabbat, Shabbat always has to be on Shabbat. So why is it in this list? We're going to deal with that today. But then we have another interesting anomaly, which is that the chapter is reintroduced with another introductory pasuk. Eile mo'adeh Hashem mikra'e kodesh be'mo'adam. These are the set times that you shall call out at their appointed times. So why would we say the same thing again twice? It's there twice. So that's by way of introduction. By the way, the next pasuk, which I've not included in, in the first source, is just uh, the beginning of a description of Pesach. And then the whole list of festivals follows from that. Let's look at Rashi. I've only included the Hebrew of one of the Rashis, but I've translated two of them. These are the first two Rashis on the chapter. The first discusses this idea of us determining the time of festivals. So it says, Daber al-Bnei Yisrael v'amarta alehem, Mo'adei Hashem ashetikru'u otam, says Rashi. This means regulate the festive seasons so that all of Israel becomes practiced in their observance. So he explains the inclusion of this first pasuk as not, this itself is an instruction. It's not an introductory verse. He says this actual verse is an instruction to, to Moses to inform the Jewish nation that they should familiarize themselves with the concept of festivals and calendar times. Um, we derive the law that they, the Sanhedrin, proclaims a leap year, which means an extra adar, for the sake of those living in the diaspora who have already left their homes in order to go up for the festival but have not yet arrived in Jerusalem. So Rashi um, explains this pasuk to mean two things. First of all, that one needs to educate. Moshe is introducing the idea of educating the Jewish nation about the existence of festivals and the fact that we are the ones who determine their date. That is point A. And point B of the pasuk is to create this idea that we are the ones who determine the time of a festival, including adding an extra month. Because what should happen on the 15th day of the second Adar should be Pesach. So if, if it would have followed, uh, let's call it the Muslim paradigm of never introducing an extra month, then what would happen on the second month of Adar, you get to the 15th of that month, it's going to be Pesach. I want to ask you a question. Are we going to eat chametz on the second, uh, uh, on the fifteenth of Adar Sheni? Of course we are. Of course we're going to eat chametz. How can you eat chametz on Pesach? Says Rashi, this pasuk tells you you're allowed to eat chametz on the fifteenth day of the second month of Adar because you decided that it's not Nisan. Because you made that determination, the fifteenth day of the second month of Adar is not Pesach, which means you can eat chametz. By the way, you can eat matzah as well if you want to. 
No problem. You can eat whatever you want. If you're the person who's such a masochist that you want to eat matzah on the 15th day of the second month of Adar, do whatever you like, but you can also eat bread. Okay, that's the point of this according to Rashi. Now Rashi deals with the second puzzle of this, of this uh, series of Pesukim. And the second Rashi, Sheshet Yamim, asks Rashi, and by the way, he's quoting a Chazal. This is a Midrash in Torah Kohanim, which is the main Midrash on Vayikra, as follows, Ma Inyan Shabbat Eitzel Mo'adot. What exactly is the relationship between Shabbos and the festive seasons? Why exactly would you put an instruction about Shabbat in a chapter which has nothing whatsoever to do with Shabbat? It's got to do with festivals and where when they are determined and what you're meant to do on them. Shabbat's got nothing to do with that. By the way, where is Shabbat to be found? In the Ten Commandments. Zacharit Yom HaShabbat LeKadsho. Shamorit Yom HaShabbat LeKadsho. We don't need it here. It's totally superfluous. In which case, what's it doing here? Ma inyan Shabbat etzel mo'adot. Answers Rashi. Lelamedcha. To teach you. By putting them both together, the Torah is teaching you that. Shekol hamachalel eta mo'adot. Ma'alin alav ke'ilu chalal eta Shabbatot. Anyone who desecrates the festivals is regarded as if he desecrated the Shabbat. And... Adds Rashi, Anyone who keeps the festivals is regarded as though he has kept the Shabbat. Now the first one of those two statements is very nice. It's a very sentimental, nice idea that um, he says, that somebody who desecrates festivals, you want to convey to the Jewish nation how important it is to keep the festivals, that they're not just like any other day, that they are very, very important. And therefore, you, you kind of introduce the concept of festivals by including a verse to do with Shabbat. That makes a lot of sense, right? You, you want to... You know, we're coming up to the festival of Shavuot. You know, I've always marveled at the fact that lots of people know about Pesach, which is in the Torah, but Shavuot is also in the Torah. And there's lots of Jews in the world who have never heard of Shavuot. Even in Israel, they've heard of Shavuot. They've got no idea it's a festival. They think it's a harvest occasion, a harvest festival. By the way, it is in the Torah, but there's so much more to it. What, what do we celebrate on Shavuot? The Torah, that we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. But, you know, more secular Jews have turned this into a harvest festival and ignore the fact that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai on that day. It's associated with the Sinai revelation. Why? Because that obviously requires commitment. If you know the Torah was given, then you need to observe everything that's contained therein. However, says Rashi, the fact that we include Shabbat in this chapter concerning festivals is there to teach you something very important. Just as we know that Shabbat is really, really important in the Jewish faith, we have to understand that festivals are also really important in the Jewish faith. That's the first part of the answer. The second statement is more troubling and more puzzling. And that is that Rashi says that anyone who keeps festivals is regarded as though he has kept the Shabbat. 
What does that mean? It's, it sounds nice when you say it quickly, but when you begin to analyze it, it makes no sense. I kept Pesach, but the Shabbos after Pesach, I didn't keep Shabbos. So the rabbi says to me, uh, excuse me, you're meant to be keeping Shabbos today. What do you mean? I kept Pesach. Why do I need to keep Shabbos? I kept the Chag. Why do I need to keep Shabbos as well? Rashi told me, I'm going to read him the words of Rashi, because obviously I'm very educated in Rashi. Malin alav Why do I need to keep Shabbos if I kept Pesach or Shavuos or Sukkot or Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah? I've got no reason to keep it because the Medrash told me that if I kept, um, if I kept the Yom Tov, I don't need to keep Shabbos. I'm going to park that question. We're going to come back to it. Okay. Let's first look at the Ramban. So the Ramban, Nachmanides, addresses this same question. And he looks at it from a slightly different angle. So the question is, why would Shabbat be included in a chapter that really is focused on festivals? Says, um, I have not translated this. Says Ramban, this is um, uh, source number three. Vanachon be'inai. What makes the most sense to me is that the understanding, the explanation of this pasuk of Mo'adei Hashem is So the, the fourth pasuk, the one which is the introductory pasuk, that actually relates to everything that follows. Pesach, Shavuot, Svirata Ome, etc. Right? All the different festivals. Um, that's the way the next verse continues. And that's why it repeats this introductory verse in verse number four in Pasuk Dalad. So in that way he explains the inclusion of a second introductory verse. What he's not yet explained is why Shabbat is included. Why do we have Shabbat in a chapter which is focused primarily on, um, or exclusively on festivals? Says Ramban, So the first verse that dis- discusses this concept of establishing times which are special in the Jewish calendar mentions something um, which relates to doing melachot. So it says, And now it needs to tell us what is special about a mo'ed. What differentiates a mo'ed in the Torah from any other day, what we would call a weekday. So we have Shabbat and festival days, and we have weekdays. Those are two categories. What differentiates a weekday from a Shabbat or festival day so the best way of defining that, of describing that, says the Ramban, is a reference to Shabbat. It's the only way we're really going to understand what the difference is, the material, practical difference between a weekday and those other days is by understanding Shabbat. And this is how he describes it. Bimelechet avoda, In the fact that those are days where you are uh, uh, um, you are told you're forbidden to work. 
You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to do things which relate to a weekday, the weekday work. Aval Shabbat tishmeru tishmeru laasot ota Shabbat Shabbaton mikol melachashe ba'olam. However, if I'm going to use Shabbat as the comparison, as the example, I'm going to think that on festival days, there's two things, there's two mistakes I'm going to make. The first mistake I'm going to make is that festival days are exactly like Shabbat, but they're not, because on a festival day you're allowed to cook. You're allowed to do all things relating to cooking, which you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. So the first mistake I'm going to make is by using the word melacha with reference to festivals, I'm going to think, oh, one second, melacha, Shabbat, festivals are the same. I'm not allowed to cook, number one. The second mistake I'm going to make is, I'm going to think that if a festival falls on Shabbat, let's say it's Pesach, the first day of Pesach is Shabbat. That's the way it was this year, right? Am I allowed to cook on Shabbat? No, of course I'm not allowed to cook. Oh, one second, I can cook. Why? Because it's a festival day. So I need to create a double differentiation and comparison between Shabbat and festivals. A, it's the same, but on festivals you're allowed to cook. And B, it's the same, which means that if Shabbat and festival fall on the same day, the laws of Shabbat take precedence, and I'm not allowed to cook. So the Ramban says, you must include a verse about Shabbat in a chapter about festivals in order for us to juxtapose the two and find the, the points of comparison and the anomalies that exist when both days are combined into one. Okay, so the, I'm just going to read you the last few words of the Ramban. Um, you must be far more careful on Shabbat than you are on a regular festival day. And also hinted in the reference to Shabbat is the fact that if a festival falls on Shabbat, the laws of Shabbat take precedence and you're not allowed to cook on Shabbat, even though it's a Chag. I'm, I could say to myself, oh, excuse me. It's a Chag today. I'm allowed to cook, even though it's Shabbat. The laws of Shabbat go out of the window. So we included the verse about Shabbat just to tell you that there is an extra restriction on a festival that falls on Shabbat. Shabbat laws take precedence. That is the Ramban. Okay, now we're going to look at Chanukat Torah. In fact, the Vilna, this is always quoted in the name of the Vilna Gaon. The, um, the Gaon of Vilna was an 18th century... Um, scholar, genius. He never held any position in a Jewish community. He lived in Vilna. He was born in 1720 and he died in 1797. And he, he was a titan of Jewish knowledge. Um, and he knew many other things. He knew science, he knew mathematics. He wrote copiously. He was also a great Kabbalist. And he very often found um, very interesting allusions in a particular place which you would never have found, and which open up other ideas, or ideas which really are quite creative in terms of understanding Jewish sources. This is one of those occasions. I'm going to read it to you. So it says as follows, Pasuk Dabrel b'nei Yisrael v'amarata lehem mo'adeh Hashem, Sheishet yamim te'aseh melacha, uvayom hashvi'i shabbat shabbaton. So how do we translate that? Pasuk Gimel, look at it, from the first source. Sheishet yamim te'asem 
Six days you should do a melacha, v'yom ha-shvi'i, Shabbat Shabbaton Mikra Kodesh, ko melacha lo ta'asu. On the seventh day, it's a Shabbat Shabbaton, and it's a holy time. You're not allowed to do any work on that day. Shabbat heat, Shabbat, Lashem for God, b'chol moshvatechem in all your residences, in every place that you live. What are we talking about in that pasuk? Tell me what you think. We're talking about Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sheishet yamim te'asem alacha. The Yom Ashvi'i is Saturday, right? Oh, Shabbat. You're not allowed to do melacha on Shabbat. Says the Vilna Gaon, you're making a mistake. It's not talking about Shabbat at all. What else could it be talking about? This is a classic piece of Vilna Gaon. How many festival days are there? Seven. There's the first day of Pesach and the last day of Pesach, that's two. Shavuot is one day. I know we keep two because we live in the diaspora, but it's one day. Rosh Hashanah, no, no, it's one day. We keep two because it's very hard to determine when the first day of the month is, but it's actually one day, okay? Sukkot, one day. Shmini Atzeret, one day. How many, are we, what are we up to? Six. There's six days of festivals. I missed one out. Yom Kippur, that's the seventh day. What's the difference between the six that I mentioned first and Yom Kippur? On the six days, you're allowed to do any malacha relating to cooking. On Yom Kippur, it's just like Shabbos. You're not allowed to do anything. Says the Vilna Gaon, you've misinterpreted this pasuk. It's not talking about a weekday Shabbos situation. On six of the festival days listed in this chapter, we are allowed to do a malacha when it relates to cooking, ochel nefesh. But on the seventh day, look at the pasuk again. Sheishet yamim te'asem malacha. On six of the days of the mo'adom, of, of, the, of the mo'eds, right? The mo'adot. Sheishet yamim te'asem malacha. However, the yom hashvi'i, on the seventh day, the yom kippur day, shabbat shabbaton. By the way, that's the way yom kippur is referred to later. It's referred to as Shabbat Shabbaton. Mikra Kodesh, it's a holy day. Every malacha you're not allowed to do, including those relating to Ochel Nefesh. Shabbat he, it's like a Shabbat, Lashem, Bechom Moshvotechem. Says the Vilna Gaon that the Torah um, included in the chapter about festivals a clear definition of the halachot relating to festival days. On six of those festival days, you can perform any act that you need to in order to cook. But on the seventh of those festival days, you have to treat it just like you would treat a Shabbat. It becomes like Shabbat in terms of melacha. Let's now turn to number five on page two. We've got source five. I've included a piece by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, which delves into this exact idea. This Alderech Remez of the Vilna Gaon reading allows us to see that holy time is all patterned on the same pattern, but at different levels of magnitude. This is a beautiful insight that this concept of the six followed by a seventh is not something which is limited to the days of the week. And in terms of determining sanctity and sacred time, 
The six followed by seven is something, is a pattern that is repeated throughout Judaism. The structure of the week, six days of work followed by a seventh that is holy, is mirrored in the structure of the year, six days of lesser holiness plus a seventh Yom Kippur of supreme holiness. And as can be seen in two chapters time, that's Leviticus 25, the same pattern appears on an even larger scale, six ordinary years followed by the year of Shemitah. We have this concept of a pattern that exists, it's, it's embedded into our system. We have a six followed by a seventh. We have a six day week followed by a Shabbat. We have a six festival day concept uh, which includes a seventh called Yom Kippur, and we have six years which are followed by a Shemitah. There are patterns in time, patterns which we need to relate to. I'm now going to look at the pre-Tzadik, Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin in Poland. He was a Talmud of the Izbitsa. Um, he was an extraordinary man who wrote an incredible amount. It's quite tough to get through it, because usually it's very Kabbalistic. Um, I've included a small piece here which I've edited slightly, but uh, I just, I think it's, it's an absolutely beautiful idea and, much, and one which we can all relate to. So it's a Kabbalistic idea which actually speaks to what I would refer to as the common man. We're not Kabbalists. Anybody, anybody here a Kabbalist? We're not, a, not Kabbalists. So if you're not a Kabbalist, sometimes it's hard to relate to Kabbalistic ideas, but this is one which we can all really take on board. But Parshazu, Katuv Kodem Parshat Hamoadot, Sheishit Yamim Tasim Alacha, Uvayom Hashvi'i Shabbat. So before the peace about festivals, before the festivals are listed, we have this reference to Shabbat that you have six days when you're allowed to do a Malacha, you're allowed to work. And on the seventh day, you have to rest. It's called Shabbat. Rashi asks, says the pre-tzadik, Why do we mention Shabbat in relation or in the same chapter? Why do we include Shabbat in the same chapter as we are talk talking about festivals? To teach you that anyone who breaks, Shabbat, who breaks the festivals, who desecrates the festival laws, it's as if he desecrated a Shabbat law. And those who carry out the laws of the festivals, who actually celebrate the festivals, we count it as if they keep the Shabbatot. What does that mean? Remember I asked that question? How can we understand that second statement of Rashi, which he quotes from the Midrash? Says the Preet Sadiq, line three, we, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. How would we even imagine that somebody who broke Shabbat but would claim that he, it's okay because he kept festivals, that that's okay? Doesn't that second statement of Rashi doesn't make any sense, says the Pritzadik. Raka pirush. What does it actually mean? The explanation is as follows. She'af shvitat Shabbat biskila. So the explanation is that even though that those who break Shabbat, who don't observe Shabbat, are liable for capital punishment 
according to the stringent application of Jewish law. And those, uh, when it comes to festivals, that's not the case. Nevertheless, there's an inherent holiness in the observance of festivals which equals um, that of observing Shabbat. So even though the penalty is different, the application of Kedushah is identical. So it's not always true that the penalty is, relates to the, to the sanctity. The sanctity of the Kedushah of Chagim is equal to the Kedushah of Shabbat. It happens to be that the penalty of Shabbat is more stringent, but the, but the actual Kedushah is identical. That's what the Pritzadik says. The Shabbat and therefore, we need to understand that Shabbat is the beginning of Mikra'i Kodesh. How are we going to understand what festivals are if we don't understand the Kedushah of Shabbat? We might think that because, the, you know, that's usually the way. By the way, if you ask any lawyer, he'll tell you there's a massive difference between a felony and a misdemeanor. What's the difference? Tell me what the difference is. You're a criminal. You are a criminal. So what's the difference? The punishment. Like if, you're, if you're a felon, you go to jail. If you if a misdemeanor, you pay a fine, you get a rap on the knuckles, whatever it is that you'll have. You lose your driving license, I don't know, whatever it is, right? There's a, there's a big difference between a misdemeanor and a felony in practical terms. But actually, in definition terms, who says it's different? Just because I'm, a, I'm somebody who committed a dis misdemeanor doesn't make me any less of a criminal if I did it with intent, right? So how are you going to convey that? So you're going to, in education terms, if I'm an educator and I want to teach children not to be criminals, I'm not going to talk about the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor. I'm going to tell them it's wrong to break the law because breaking the law turns you into a criminal. And one way or another, you're going to be a criminal if you break the law. It doesn't matter if you go through a red light or if you steal something from someone or God forbid, you're a murderer. In any of those instances, you become a criminal. Why? You're now identifying yourself as somebody who disregards the law. The fact that there is a differentiation in terms of the penalty, that's, the, that's something the legal system has to deal with. That's, you know, and that is something you'll have to deal with in terms of what happens if you get caught. But even if you never get caught, you're still a criminal. Now, if you were to um, go by the... I, let's call it the system we're all familiar with, the adult system of relating to crime, it's all going to be about penalty, right? So if you're going to look at the system of festivals and Shabbat in terms of the penalty, you're going to say, well, festivals are not that important. Why not? Because the penalty for desecrating a festival is not that great. Shabbat, oh, that's really important because there, that's a capital crime if I desecrate Shabbat. So in order to convey the importance of festivals, we need to include a verse on Shabbat in the chapter. Because otherwise we'll forget about the Kedushah and we'll focus on the penalty. In other words, we're going to be focused on the wrong aspect of the festivals rather than the right aspect of the festivals. So in order to include the Kedushah, we need to have a reference to Shabbat. That's what he says. For Shabbat hu tchilal mikra'i kodesh, shuzkar Shabbat achar katuv ele mo'adei Hashem mikra'i kodesh, v'achar kach nechshavu ha'mo'adot. So 
in order to understand the gravity of Kedushah, the importance of Chagim in terms of Kedushah, we need to include the verse on Shabbat. And he continues as follows. It's a beautiful piece. Kedushat Shabbat, Kvi'ah mitzat Hashemit barach mibriat olam. Let's understand what Shabbat is. We need to understand what Shabbat is. It's really important. He deals with a question which troubled me for many years until I saw this piece. What is Shabbat? Tell me what Shabbat is. God created the world in as referenced in Genesis, in six days, whatever that means, and I've given Shurim on this many times, we don't know what those six days mean, we just know that's the way it's conveyed to us. It doesn't need to be six 24-hour periods, it just needs to be the concept of six days, that on the seventh was Shabbat. Okay, we all agree with that, right? Six days followed by Shabbat. On the seventh day, God rested. Okay, very nice. Who kept Shabbat? No one. Did Adam keep Shabbat, Eve? No, they didn't keep Shabbat. Did Noah keep Shabbat? No, he didn't. So who cares about Shabbat? But we know that that's where Shabbat comes from. Who are the first people to keep Shabbat? Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, were they allowed to keep Shabbat? That's a moot point, as we're going to see. But the first group of people that were actually instructed to keep Shabbat was the Jewish nation. How many years after creation was that, according to the chronology of our Torah, a couple of thousand years. Again, not important, but we know it's long after the creation time. So what happened to Shabbat between creation and when the first instruction was delivered? Was Shabbat a holy day or wasn't it a holy day? It's hard to understand, isn't it? So we're keeping Shabbat because God rested on the seventh day of creation, but Shabbat was not kept. And we know how central Shabbat is to the continued survival of the, of the world. The whole concept of the world is that there should be a Shabbat, right? That the, it's not that the world, the, that we need to... What happens if we don't work on Shabbat? This is a question which, as a rabbi, I get asked from time to time. What happens if we don't work on Shabbat? I need to work on Shabbat, people tell me. Because if I don't work, my business is going to collapse. What happens if people don't work? If, let's say if tomorrow morning, the entire world didn't work on Shabbat. What would happen to the world? It would still continue to turn on its axis and it would still continue to circle the sun. It's hard to believe, but there you go. Nothing actually would happen. The world would continue to exist whether or not we worked. So what, what is Shabbat teaching us? That our contribution to the world is not necessarily the work that we do, but the relationship that we have with God. That's why God rested on the seventh day. The problem, of course, with that is that that only happened a couple of thousand years after creation. How are we meant to align this um, kind of this friction between the reality of the first couple of thousand years of creation and the importance or the centrality of Shabbat in, in, uh, in human existentialism? How are we meant to understand it? So let's look at what Preet Sadiq says. We know that the sanctity of Shabbat is something which has existed, was established by God from the time of creation. But there was nobody keeping Shabbat at that time. It was, it was a big secret. You know, many years ago, I, 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 my first Shabbat in, in London as the rabbi of the Saatchi Synagogue, we had a dinner, 150, 200 people, however many people it was, 
And many of those people didn't observe Shabbat. And they were coming because we'd created a lot of publicity around this first weekend of the synagogue. I said, I want to describe to you what Shabbat is. Has anybody here heard of the radio wave? You know, everybody, you've got a, everyone has a radio in their car, at least, even if we don't listen to the radio at home. Nobody listens to the wireless at home anymore, but we do listen to the radio in the car. What happens when you turn on the radio? How many stations do you have on FM? Countless stations, right? Every two notches is another station that you can listen to of music. Imagine you would have had, you go back in time, you can fly in Doctor Who's TARDIS, and go back 500 years and you'd have a car with a radio and you'd be driving down whatever the streets were in those days and you'd turn your radio on. What would, you, what would, what would you find on the radio stations? Nothing. Why? But the radio waves exist. What would happen if you would drive your car down the street today and you don't have a radio in your car? Do those FM stations broadcast or don't they broadcast? They're still there, right? So radio waves pre-existed Marconi's discovery. You don't need Marconi for radio waves. Radio waves were there. Shabbat is there. Whether or not you turn your radio on, the broadcast is still there. You need to get the radio, then you need to turn it on and tune into the station called Shabbat. That's, that's, that, is the, that is the issue. So now, when, when God created the world, there was nobody to observe the Shabbat. The radio station existed. Radio waves were there, but there was no one to observe it. In fact, Bnei Noach are not permitted to observe Shabbat. And we know from the Gemara, Bnei Noach she Shabbat, it's a capital crime for somebody who's not Jewish to observe Shabbat. I don't believe that anybody's been executed as a result of that particular law, but the concept is there that if you're not somebody who is a fully observant Jew, you're not allowed to observe Shabbat. There was a group of people called the patriarchs, the forefathers and foremothers and their families, who did begin this concept of Shabbat in the world. They observed Shabbat to whatever Whatever that means, we don't understand what the observance of mitzvot meant at the time of the Avot. But they recognized the existence of Shabbat and observed a seventh day. This concept of a seventh day as Shabbat was something that already existed at the time of the patriarchs. And only afterwards, at a later date, this was given as a gift to the Jewish nation. Matana tova yeshli bebet the Shabbat Shema. This is a famous Gemara in Shabbat. God says, I have a beautiful gift in my storehouse, and the name of that gift is Shabbat. I'm, I demand to give it to Israel, he says to Moses. I want to give it to the Jewish nation. Go and tell them this. In other words, my most precious treasure kept in my most um, secluded storeroom, the safe. In the heart of the safe room, that is called Shabbat, but I want to give it to the Jewish nation. Aval, Kudushat HaMoadot Hitchil Al Yisrael. One thing we know for sure, the concept of the sanctity of the festivals is something that only began with the Jewish nation. It couldn't have pre-existed. Why? Even if you're going to say that um, Abraham Avinu knew through prophecy the date of the liberation of the Jews from Egypt, he knew it was going to be on the 15th of Nisan, 
right? And he only ate matzah on the 15th of Nisan of whatever the years were that he, was, that he observed. He couldn't be celebrating a tiat mitzrayim in anticipation, in advance. That's not possible. You can't celebrate something that hasn't happened yet. So how did Pesach come about? Only as a result of the exodus from Egypt. So even though Shabbat existed from the dawn of history, Pesach doesn't exist from the dawn of history, even if people knew through prophecy that it would exist at some future date. Like we cannot celebrate now the coming of the Messiah, even though we know that the Messiah is going to come. Even though we know that, it still hasn't happened yet. So we can only celebrate something once it happened. Says the Pritzadik, Pesach b'yitziat mitzrayim. Pesach is only begins its kedusha, the exodus from Egypt. Shvuot matan Torah. Shvuot only when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. Yom HaKippurim, al yedei shechatu be'egel v'nimchal lahem b'yom HaKippurim. Why have we got Yom Kippur on that particular day? Because during that year, they committed the sin of the golden calf, as a result of which they went through a rehabilitation process, as a result of which they were forgiven on Yom Kippur. So that very first Yom Kippur becomes the day that is the forgiveness day, the day of atonement. And why do we celebrate Sukkot? Because we were joyous at the fact that we were forgiven for the sin of the golden calf. That joy could only happen that year. It couldn't happen before because Yom Kippur hadn't yet happened. As it says in the Pasuk. You could come with an alternative reason. Why do we celebrate Sukkot? Because we um, lived in booths throughout our period as wanderers in the wilderness. So that cannot be commemorated in anticipation. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob never wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and they never lived in booths or they were never covered by the anane hakavod, the, the, uh, the clouds. So we can celebrate it once that has happened. But that kedusha could only exist from the moment it occurred and thereafter. The gam Rosh Hashanah ne'mar, ki chok Yisrael hu mishpat. Rosh Hashanah was established as a day of kedusha only once the Jewish nation entered the scene. Even though even though it was a day of judgment before that time, it wasn't a day of Kedusha. It was only a day of judgment. It was a secular day of judgment, the beginning of a year that had no relationship with Kedusha. It becomes a Mishpat Leloke Yaakov only once the Jewish nation enters the scene. So now, and this is the, this is the brilliant piece. Okay, that was just the introduction to what he's about to say. Now, after God has injected, has infused the Jewish nation with sanctity, with sacredness, through these various acts which have been described, such as Yitziat Mitzrayim, such as Matan Torah, such as by giving them mitzvot. And we said in Parshat Kedoshim, Kedoshim to you, why? Ki ani Hashem Kadishchem. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. As bekocham lachnis kedushah It was through their sanctity that they are able to inject sacredness and sanctity, holiness, as we, that's the word we use, into the festival days. It's through their 
being Kedoshim, that the days that they celebrate to commemorate these various things become holy. And now he says, and now we use reverse technology. Because Shabbat pre-existed all the Mo'adot, and it was a day which lent itself to this concept, but hadn't been used or utilized in that way until that time. So now they can reverse the sanctity that they have been infused with, and which they have infused the festival days with, into Shabbat. So it's not the other way around that Shabbat is holy, and the festivals are holy. You see that the, the, how he's reversed it, he's changed it round. The festival days are holy because they were given to the Jewish nation through their holiness, and they're the ones who created that holy time. Now that you've got this holy time, use that as the springboard, as the platform to inject holiness into Shabbat, which has been abandoned as a holy day since the time of creation. Do you see that? It now becomes the duty of the Jewish nation to take that holiness which they now possess and to infuse it into Shabbat. So the second Aseret Hadibrot, which we have, which is recorded in Vait Hanan, which came about after the Kilkul, it says, In order to keep Shabbat, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Through your understanding of your emergence from slavery in Egypt, your exodus, now you can keep the Shabbat. The Shabbat isn't holy in and of itself. It only becomes holy if you use the experience of the Exodus to create that holiness. So rather than looking at Shabbat as the primary holy thing and the festivals as subsidiaries, it now he reverses it around. He says the festivals are the primary source of holiness and you use that as the platform to create the holiness of Shabbat. Quite remarkable, isn't it? It now becomes incumbent upon the Jewish nation to inject Shabbat with a holiness that they understand through their experiences as described in the festival. So A.J. Heschel has a fascinating book. It's called the, S the Sabbath, Its Meaning for Modern Man. I've taken a little paragraph from it and I've edited it down um, because I think it's so beautiful. Judaism is a religion of time aimed at the sanctification of time. Unlike the space-minded man to whom time is unvaried and homogenous and for whom all hours are alike, the Bible keenly senses the diversified character of time. So time itself, you know, a space person is busy with what things are, where I am, what things look like, you know, what space I'm occupying. Don't think about time because time seems the same wherever you are. It doesn't matter if I'm in one place or another or what time, you know, you only begin to think of time when things begin to slow down for you. But, but actually, it's got nothing to do with time. That's actually to do with space as well, right? It's time that's important in the Torah, not space. And that's, that's the point he wants to make. There are no two hours 
that are alike. Every hour is unique and is only and is the only one given at that moment. Exclusive and endlessly precious. Judaism teaches us to be attached to holiness in time, to be attached to sacred events, and to learn how to consecrate sanctuaries that emerge from the magnificent stream of a year. So instead of looking at edifices in terms of space, look at edifices, that's what he's saying, in terms of time. The Sabbaths, Shabbat that we have, they are our great cathedrals. And our Holy of Holies is a shrine that neither the Romans nor the Germans were able to burn. A shrine that even apostasy cannot easily obliterate, namely the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's our Holy of Holies. We don't need a space on Temple Mount. We have a Holy of Holies. It's called Yom Kippur. According to the ancient rabbis, it's not the observance of the Day of Atonement, but the actual day itself, the essence of the day. Ki bayom The day itself atones for your sins. The man's repentance atones for the sins of man through the day existing. I could do all the things of Yom Kippur the day before or the day afterwards, and it won't be as effective because it's not in that sanctified time. The time is the important aspect. And he continues as follows. Jewish ritual may be characterized as the art of significant forms in time and as the architecture of time. Most of its observances, Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, Chagim, the sabbatical and the jubilee year, depend on a certain hour of the day or season of the year. It is, for example, the evening, morning or afternoon that brings with it the call to prayer. The main themes of faith lie in the realm of time. We remember the day of the Exodus from Egypt on that day, the day when Israel stood at Sinai on that day. And our messianic hope is the expectation of a particular day and of the end of days. So it is this concept of time, and that's why they're called Mikra'e Kodesh, right? Elohim Mo'adai, time. The word Mo'ed means time, a fixed time. And they need to be called out. They need to be expressed in that, in that terminology. Time is the key element of Jewish faith, of the Jewish faith. And I'm going to end, and it's a, it's a little bit of a long piece. I tried to edit it down as much as I could. It's a piece from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And he's got various versions of this on his website. And I've heard him speak about it as well. It's absolutely fascinating. It's on this concept of the duality of time. Alongside the holiness of place and person is the holiness of time, something Parshat Emor charts in its deceptively simple list of festivals and holy days. Time plays an enormous part in Judaism. The first thing God declared holy was a day, not a place, not a thing, a day, Shabbat, at the conclusion of creation. The first mitzvah given to the Jewish people as a whole prior to the Exodus was the command to sanctify time. God says, by determining and applying the Jewish calendar. That was the first mitzvah given to the Jewish nation. And the prophets were the first people in history to see God in history, seeing time itself as the arena of the divine human encounter. Not a place, but time. 
Virtually every other religion and civilization before and since has identified God, reality and truth with timelessness. Time in Judaism is an essential medium of the spiritual life, but there is one feature of the Jewish approach to time that has received less attention than it should, the duality that runs through its entire temporal structure. Duality means that there's a kind of parallel. There's, there's a time here and a time there, and they kind of never meet with each other. They're running alongside each other. Take, for instance, he says, the calendar as a whole. Christianity uses a solar calendar, as I explained earlier. Islam, a lunar one. Judaism uses both. We count time both by the monthly cycle of the moon and the seasonal cycle of the sun. We have created a fusion of lunar and solar. We don't tie ourselves to one form of time or another. We combine the two. Then consider the day. Days normally have one identifiable beginning, whether this is at nightfall or daybreak, or as in the West, somewhere in between. For calendar purposes, the Jewish day begins when? Nightfall. Right? Because we said in, in the creation narrative, Vahi Erev, Vahi Voker, Yom, etc. But if we look at the structure of the prayers, the morning prayer instituted by Abraham, afternoon by Isaac, evening by Jacob, there is a sense in which the worship of the day starts when? In the morning, not in the night, not the night before. So there's a duality there. When does the day begin? Does it begin at the night time or is that the end of the day? Does it begin in the morning or is that already in the middle of the day? There is this duality. Years, too, usually have one fixed beginning, the new year. In Judaism, according to the Mishnah, to Rosh Hashanah, it's the first Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. There are no less than four new years. The first of Elul is the new year for tithing of animals. The 15th of Shvat, or the first, according to Beit Shammai, is the new year for trees. But then you get the two important ones. According to the Torah, the first month of the year is Nisan, we mentioned that earlier, that's when Pesach is. But the festival we call the New Year, Rosh Hashanah, falls six months later. So which is it? Is Nisan the beginning of the year? Or is Rosh Hashanah the beginning of the year? We have this duality. It, and, and by the way, they can't be reconciled. You can't say they're both the beginning or that one is more the beginning than the other one. There, there seems to be two separate calendars running alongside each other. Finally, Holy time itself comes in two forms. There is Shabbat and there are the festivals. And the two are announced separately. Shabbat was sanctified by God at the beginning of time, for all time. The festivals are sanctified by the Jewish people to whom was given the authority and responsibility for fixing the calendar. We can fix when Pesach, Shavuot and Sukkot are, but we can't fix when Shabbat is because that was predetermined by God. Even within the festivals, there is a dual cycle. One is formed by the three pilgrimage festivals, Pesach, Shavuot and Sukkot. So that's one cycle. These are days that represent the key historic moments at the dawn of Jewish time. The Exodus, the giving of the Torah, and the 40 years of desert wandering. They are festivals of history. The other is formed by the number seven and the concept of holiness. The seventh day, which is Shabbat, the seventh month, which is Tishri, with its three festivals of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Sukkot, the seventh year, Shemitah, and the Jubilee, which marks the completion of seven seven-year cycles. Seven times seven is 49. The 50th year becomes Shemitah. And he continues, 
The second group of times, with the exception of Sukkot that belongs to both cycles, so seems to straddle both of them, have less to do with history than with metaphysics and jurisprudence, ultimate truths about the universe, the human condition, and the laws, both natural and moral, under which we live. Each is about creation. Shabbat is a reminder of it. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of it. Divine sovereignty, justice and judgment, together with the human condition of life, death and mortality. On Yom Kippur, we face justice and judgment. On Sukkot and Shmini Atzeret, we pray for rain and celebrate nature with the Arba Minim. And we read the book of Kohelet, Tanakh's most profound meditation on mortality. In the seventh and jubilee years, we acknowledge God's ultimate ownership of the land of Israel and the children of Israel. We let slaves go free. We release debts. We let the land rest. We restore most property to its original owners. All of these have to do not with God's interventions into history, but with his role as creator and owner of the universe. So Rabbi Sachs asks the obvious question, why the duality? Because God is both the God of nature and the God of culture. He is the God of everyone in general and of the people of the covenant in particular. He's the author of both scientific law, which is cause, and the religious ethical law, which is command. We encounter God both in cyclical time, which represents the movement of planets, and linear historical time, which represents the events and evolutions of the nation of which we are a part. This very duality gives rise to two kinds of religious leader, which we see in our history, the prophet and the priest. The prophet deals with one aspect of our Judaism, the priest deals with another aspect of our Judaism, and the different consciousness of time each of those represents. Since the ancient Greeks, people have searched for a single principle that would explain everything, or the single, single point that Archimedes sought at which to move the world, or the unique perspective, what philosophers call the view from nowhere, from which to see truth in all its objectivity. Judaism tells us there is no such point. Reality is far more complicated than that. There is not even a single concept of time. At the very least, we need two perspectives to be able to see reality in three dimensions, and that applies to time as well as space. Jewish time has two rhythms at once. We'll leave it here.